All right, this Hangout is on air. Happy Monday, everyone. Today is October 23rd, and this is episode 23, 30, episode 32 <laughs> of Get Your Tech on our show on all things Doxis. I'm Brady Volk, founder of the Volpe Firm and Nimble This. With us today is a special guest, Mia Colabrese. Uh, she does a lot of stuff behind the scenes, and she was at the SCTE Cable Tech Expo last week. So, Mia, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Also, with us is John Downey, the man who brought us the Human Guy Show to Cable. The Human Gun Show. It says, <laughs> <laughs> it says Guy Show. Yeah, it's hey, John, show. so uh, thanks for joining us, John. <laughs> I, I just didn't know if you got your tickets to the gun show, so I had to make sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we'll, uh, we'll, we'll bring you some more details about what that means coming up shortly. So uh, John is also CMTS technical leader of Cisco Systems. So John and Mia, thanks for uh, thanks for being on the show today. Today's episode, we're going to cover some topics of what happened during the Cable Tech Expo 2017 last week. Uh, so if you were unable to attend, uh, hopefully we'll be able to bring you some flavor of what the show is about and give you some updates of things that we saw we thought were interesting and uh, give you our take on what the show was. So. Uh, Anything uh, we want to start off with? We have a little bit of a slide teaser to go into. Wanna yeah, sure. Start off with that. Why don't I start off with that? Okay. What about um, you know just the breakdown of how the show is a little different this year? It started yes. in mid, right? Uh, it started midweek, which is interesting. Um, what's also interesting is the week before it actually snowed in Denver, so luckily we had no snow this yeah. the week we had it last week. Um, the show floor didn't open until Wednesday, which was strange because some of the workshops started on Tuesday. Yeah, that was actually a little surprising to me because I, I flew out uh, on Tuesday afternoon and just caught midway through your presentation. So, <laughs> which I'm glad you did because I was you know slinging some slinging your name around a lot during my presentation. <laughs> <laughs> I was calling you out even though you weren't there. Yes, no, thanks. <laughs> you know, and I mentioned it that you and I were supposed to uh, co-present. Um, and we didn't have a whole lot of time, so I focused mainly on Doxus 3.1 downstream. My, uh, this was Tuesday at 3.15. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised it was a full house. Um, I was standing room only. It was yeah. fantastic attendance at your presentation. And it was three rooms open. It was like 102, 104, 106. So it was three rooms filled up. Um, and why I was pleasantly surprised was because it was Tuesday and not even the first day of the real show. Right. Show yeah. floor didn't open until Wednesday. And maybe that was a good thing, right? Maybe uh, people were already there and they had nothing else to kind of pull their attention away. Uh, so many people did, I think, focus on going to the workshops, which was good. Yeah. And I, I think I think having the workshops on that day, if people are flying in early, as you say, you know, getting ready for the show, it there was no distractions. So people who came in on that day were definitely focused on the workshops. So it was a yeah, good day I, for I, that. I also find it interesting that, you know, the expo was historically meant for what is happening today. How do I do troubleshooting? How do I use what's actually available today? The Western show and emerging technologies used to be what's five years down the road, what's coming down the road. Well, now that those shows are gone, there's no cable show. There's no INTX, uh, NCTA show. SCTX was like the last cable show in the U.S., big one. Uh, now it's everything. And there is no looking five years down the road because of the speed of the internet. Everything's like six months down the road. 
10 months down the road. It comes around very, very fast. So I noticed that the Expo now has a lot on full duplex Doxis, FTX, Remote Fi, Doxis 3.1 Upstream. These are some things that no one's really deploying yet, but we're talking about it a lot at this show. Now, for my presentation, I'm like, let me go back to the days of old and let's talk about what's actually deployed right now, even though it's not heavily deployed. And that was Doxis 3.1 Downstream. I said, here are some of the settings to optimize and get the best speed. Uh, there's no reason why we probably can't do 4K qualm on a downstream, even though many people are nervous about 1K qualm. So we talked about the efficiency of uh, Doxus 3.1, uh, some of the fallacies of Doxus 3.1, the pros and cons, um, the fact that we can do graceful profile management. And I think that's what really operationalizes Doxus 3.1 downstream. I didn't talk about upstream at all. Now, Joe Godis was my moderator and he let me speak first. And I told him, I said, you let me speak first, I might not come down off that podium. So I, I took up 40 minutes <laughs> and I gave about 10 minutes to Doug Jones of Cable Labs <laughs> to talk about Doxis 3.1 upstream affecting RFOG networks. <laughs> yeah, so that's really no surprise. But <laughs> anyone that's going to be speaking with you. <laughs> I told him it's his fault, not mine. <laughs> you know how I am. Oh, yeah, all too well. <laughs> <laughs> but it was good. It was a good session. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, had, I had good feedback from uh, several different people on, on the sessions. So yours, yours in particular was a good session. Nice job, John, as usual. Right. One more thing I was going to add that I, I maybe I start incorporating into other speeches, is, and I didn't do it on purpose. I started flailing around, and I hit their microphone with my hand, and it just went boom, and everyone just jumped up. I'm like, hello, wake up. <laughs> That's for the people who are sleeping during your session. <laughs> it scared a lot of people. And then I told someone else that came by my booth later, I said, yeah, I didn't really mean to do that, and I hit it. He said, you did it twice. I'm like, oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <great. laughs> nice. So, all, all right. right. So, so um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have some uh, just some pictures here to share from the from this uh, we got during the presentation, and uh, the first one here is just kind of what you see. So you know, for for people who weren't at the presentation, obviously, so if you're listening the to the opening. audio yeah. only, yeah, this is kind of what you see when you walk into the uh, the presentation hall. So lots of people standing around. You see the, the big banner here, kind of go through here. So uh, burn at burns effects here. This is walking into the exhibit hall. So as stampede of people coming in. Now this, this is, is the John Downey Gun Show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so to get that going in I was, I was doing like triple duty here i had to do uh demo set up tear down also do my speech and also handle the booth uh with some of uh my compadres and i my, thought you were juggling the nodes over your head <laughs> i was carrying some seven thousands in the eris node one of the things we showed in our booth was eris uh their node interoperating with our ccap core so that we could show open rpd so yeah. Their remote five working with our our CMTS and their E six thousand working with our GS seven thousand. So yeah, they uh, those those boxes gonna be pretty heavy. <laughs> <laughs> Just jump right in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So then this is uh, right at the show opening. We took a saw proof that all three of us were there. Mm -hmm. Getting out onto the show floor, you can see there can be quite a few people. There's oh. your there's your Merce, uh, your man Merce there. Or I think we, we like to call it a satchel. It's a satchel. <laughs> your satchel, John. It's a satchel. Hey, is your hotel pager friendly? 
<laughs> <It's just> not- <laughs> So Anyone knows the reference to the Hangover movie gets it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, we had an announcement that we made at Expo, which was a, a, part, a new partnership we have with a test equipment company called VX. Right. They're now uh, uh, white labeling and, and distributing our PNM applications. So we've added them to our list of partners that are doing that. So this was including just, including Cisco, including Cisco, who's been doing and, it for yeah, a while, and yeah, well. some other company and Decorum. Decorum, and, yep. So uh, yeah, it's just, just expanding our footprint and uh, in, in expanding the number of uh, customers that are able to access and cha- through different channels our our uh, proactive network maintenance platform, which and, of course we still love greatly. Yep. <laughs> so so uh, bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by Nimble This. <laughs> <laughs> So, so was that an announcement you made, or was it, was, it, yeah, it was announced? Yeah, we, the there show. was a press release uh, at the show that came out uh, on this uh, on our partnership with VX. Nice, congratulations! Yeah, thank you. So, uh, yeah, more pictures. This is at the Cisco, Cisco booth. booth. Yeah, and then and then uh, we had a white paper that we did uh, with Comsonics, uh, some testing and stuff on on pressure tests. Yeah, so so basically, uh, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with the pressure testing uh, leakage tools. Basically, you disk when when you identify a subscriber's home that has impairments, particularly through using proactive network maintenance tools, you know that there's problems either with the subscriber's drops or there's problems with their in-home wiring. And what we found over time is you can spend a lot of time identifying exactly where the where the problem is. You know, is, is there a crack in the cable, a crack in the drop, a loose connector, some where you know where is the problem in the subscriber's in-home wiring? So the the testing that we've done with Comsonics is you disconnect the subscriber's drop, you connect this uh, device that injects a lot of high-level RF signals into the subscriber's home. And then you walk around with their that little handheld device you see uh, sitting on top of our, our white paper, and it identifies where the leaks are, whether it's on the drop, on bad connectors, on the house box, or inside the house. And it can really reduce the time to find any impairments, wherever they are, on the drop or inside the house, from you know a, a couple of hours to 15 to 20 minutes. And this just dramatically... But you're saying impairments, you really mean uh, 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 cracks in the cable. Uh, Bad connectors, the- loose connectors, corroded it, connectors. It was actually a pretty, um, it was a field test that we did for over a week. No, about a week. But it took a lot of planning in advance with a cable operator. And we actually went to real subscribers' homes. We had no expectation of like what would happen. So we just thought it would be interesting to do. And we had 100% um, uh, success, basically, for every house we went to. So it was pretty. It was pretty interesting. And I also, I think this Comsonic unit is unique. Um, I don't think it's the same as what some other people have on the market, mm-hmm. from my understanding. Um, but then again, I think we're gonna. What we're so we were what we wanted to do was have a maybe have a, just a hangout talking about this because it seemed, it was pretty, it was pretty interesting and we're looking at doing it with a couple other operators too now. So, um, but, yeah. it, but you can download the white paper from, uh, nimblethis.com. That's on our, on yeah. our website. Or yeah. Or yeah. go to Comsonic too. So, oh, look. oh yeah. More pictures of John. <laughs> 
oh, this was interesting. This was at the Ares booth, and it was the only example that we could find of a full duplex. Yeah, it was full duplex doxes. So they had a, a demo of full duplex doxes in Qualm, and they were just showing, uh, they had a nice visuals where you could you could disable the echo canceller, and you could see the video dropout and the bandwidth and the upstream dropout. It was just a, a nice uh a nice technical test. So, you know, Cable Labs just released the specification on full duplex doxis. And, just uh, the five layer. Yeah, so the, so the five layer. Uh, what Eris was doing was uh, a nice real world test of, yes, the theory, you know, listening to the theory is good, but seeing the theory In actually action. work yeah. is, is also uh, a nice thing to, to see have going on. You know, you you came over to our demo, and we had we started encroaching in the hallway and everything of how our demos were set up. But round to the middle of our booth and inside, there was a full duplex Doxis demo. I don't even know if you got in there. No. Um, yeah, we took it a step further, and we actually had spools of cable. Now we used RG six. I told them they should have used mini coax to save space, but they did RG six on fifty nine, uh, series six or series fifty nine. They did seven spools taps to simulate a real fiber node with echo cancellation. So it was a special fiber node and it was seven taps. And then it was uh, uh, modems. The modems didn't have echo cancellation, but they were a different diplex filter split. So they could do upstream up to 204, whatever it was. So we had overlapping spectrum just like this. And we showed how the, to operationalize this, you're gonna have to have modems transmit uh, like a CW carrier, almost like a sweep signal, um, so that you can discover which modems will affect other modems. So then you put the modems that interfere with each other into an interference group. So you have transmission groups, you have interference groups. Once you can identify modems that will affect each other because of group delay, microreflections, uh, port-to-port isolation, maybe I everyone off the same tap will be in the same interference group because they're going to have port-to-port isolation issues or and one person's down, downstream is going to affect the other person's upstream. So you don't allow full duplex in an interference group. So we call it full duplex, which is true, but it's actually simplex, or <laughs> I like to say half duplex, but isn't that like an oxymoron? Half? <laughs> yeah. So you don't call it simplex. <laughs> so in an interference group, you have uh, half duplex or simplex. But when I'm transmitting, maybe someone that's a tap five spans down, they're not going to be in the same interference group. So their downstream could be receiving downstream while I'm doing upstream. And that's where the full duplex comes into play. So we had a demo there as well. And it was kind of cool. Yeah. We didn't, we didn't have, um, honestly, it was impossible to get inside your booth. Yeah. I know (laughs) your booth was really quite crowded, but I I think this, uh, I mean, back to your point earlier uh, where, you know, SCT Expo used to be more like what the technology is now. I think this is an example, you know, really Cable Labs is just releasing the five-spec and we're still seeing technology that's pushing out uh, well beyond what what is available to operators well, now. Well, what people are actively using right, right now. The other thing that I thought, just because we're on the topic a little bit, I had been talking to a cable operator who act from Switzerland who actually was saying they specifically like coming to Cable Tech Expo because of the papers and because they were like, there's really no other trade show that is as technically competent, I guess. Yeah. It so provides it was, as, yeah. 
Absolutely. It was actually pretty interesting to hear that from someone other than an American who's coming here specifically because they want to definitely go to all the... Um, <clears throat> Yep, the technical yeah. sessions, you see the, yeah. also the technology that's on the, on the floor. I think the unique thing is you're getting papers from not just vendors, but also MSOs and operators. So you're getting real-world experience, not just theory, not just uh, a presentation smacking of sales. Marketing promotion. It's yeah. not even a hidden agenda. It's not even subtle. You know, some, <laughs> some are like just marketing material. And it's like, you know, this is supposed to be generic enough that you're not talking about your specific functionality, but you want to give meat and potatoes too. Like for instance, right. when I gave my presentation, I said, you know, here are some commands I use on the Cisco CMTS. Please, you know, go to your system, your CMTS vendor and get the equivalent of command because it's all technology. So I'm not trying to promote a Cisco device. I'm trying to promote the technology itself. Right. Yep. Yeah. All right. So moving along here. Okay. So Talk to Alberto Campos. And so for people who have who don't know Alberto, I, I he works for Cable Labs and he is uh, someone who is really the the founder of Proactive Network Maintenance, but he's also He's just he, a very brilliant man. Yeah, he, he's involved with so much technology and someone that I really like to always meet with and just see what's on his mind because right. he's normally He's normally on the cutting, the real cutting edge of a lot of technologies and just also just a great guy. Yeah. I have a lot of respect for, for Alberto. So anyone gets a chance to meet him, say hi. Oh, there we go. And then next Extreme up, runner. Uh, Asaf. So you, John, probably remember Asaf from the last mm -hmm. hangout he had. So I got to spend some time with him and uh, talk about the technologies he's working with at Harmonic. And we talked about, uh, I, I think, a, a, another great hangout that we would have uh, perhaps the three of us again is to do a deeper dive into RFI technology because there is so much RFI. Well, we were actually he he gave us a demo of what they're working on, and also we were thinking it would be nice to also see if we can get someone from Aris to come on. I think we have someone in mind, and we stopped by a couple times at the booth to see if she was available to talk to us. So I'm going to get in touch with her, but I think it'd be nice, like you said earlier. I mean, everyone is doing their own thing and how they're getting there, but it would be great to have, you know, everyone just talk about the technology, kind of like how we talk about the technology when we're just hanging out at a bar at night, not really talking about, so, you know, give me the, you know, we're not going to buy that Cisco node from you, John. We love you, but we're not going to do that. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting to talk about the tech and how it works. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the last hangout we did with uh, myself, Brady, and Asaf was, uh, virtual CMTS, cloud CMTS. And then I brought up, it says, it's not going to happen without remote FI. So right. yeah, I mean, us going deeper into the remote FI side of it, uh, I think bodes well. Um, maybe there's still some misconception of what remote FI really means and, and how we envision us going further and further and deeper and deeper. Um, so that's one of the things that we showcased in our demos as well is open RPD. It's all open. So you already have an investment in the outside plant you're not going to rip out all your ARIS nodes and put in Cisco nodes if it's proprietary to do remote FI with the Cisco CMTS core. So we got to make sure that the outside plant and the CMTS side are interoperable. And that's exactly what we're showing now. Yeah, and, and right. I think that's really important for operators because they want to be able to mix the technology back and forth between one vendor and another vendor. So having that integration, the interoperability that you're doing at the show, really, really, really good for operators in the industry. Yeah. 
So, uh, so this is another one of our partners, Zcorum, uh, Art Skinner here. He was, uh, he's at the show doing right. lots of demos. He's also super a great friendly guy. guy. Yeah. Yeah. We love art. So yeah. Spent a lot this of time with him. Z-Quorum? Yeah. This is Zcorum. So they're, they're also one of, uh, our partners, uh, and Endless. Art also likes to bake. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> <laughs> did, he get, did he get some special ingredients while he was in Denver? This is a little quicker. So yeah. this was actually a night. This is, uh, John, if you see the picture. Um, I think down there is the Aris node. And I don't know. Who, side, uh, yeah. B, PBN. PBN, right. And uh, then that's a tel- the white box above yeah. it. That's uh, Teleste. And then yeah. you can also see uh, B, K, Tal, and then um, Victor. The ve- this, Vector. This is the Vector one over here. Vector, Victor. So, so this is where you're showing your interoperability, and yep. this is your node up here. We took, we took that, go back. We took that GS7000 node a step further, and um, so it's the same housing and same footprint, same form factor, but in the middle in the lid there, it's an RPD or a remote fly device. So there's no there's – no, Amplitude modulation, there's no transmitter receiver, there's no overlay here. It's all digital 10 giggy link coming in. That's the blue fiber going in. Uh, but the amplification is that's where all the RF happens. This was called the iNode. So the intelligent node has no plug-in pads and EQs. Uh, it basically is controlled via software. You know, and you and I, Brady, working at Secor Electronics, you know, 20 years ago, whatever it's been, uh, we've talked about that a long time ago, but now the technology is finally catching up where we can do this economically, where we could put in uh, uh, surface mount technology and then be able to drive things via SNMP or whatever communications we need to talk to the device and change the equalization, change the padding, change the RF channels coming out of this thing remotely. Now I plugged an iPad into a USB port to set it up, but eventually you know, this will be via the network. So right. you could be sitting, sitting at your home and change the output of this thing whenever you want. Yeah, I think technicians, I, I mean, I think there's two things here. One, technicians don't have to walk around with a, a tackle box full of pads and equalizers, which is spectacularly awesome. I think, two, technicians awesome. don't walk <laughs> around with pads and equalizers and make adjustments unnecessarily at times, maybe because they don't completely understand how this device, you know, how a, how a, you know, maybe there's a change in the network. And so they think, well, I'll, I'll compensate because, you know, someplace there's some additional loss that's come in because something's been damaged in the network. So what do they do? They adjust the padding in the, in the node or in an amplifier and no one knows that that was done. So then they fix the repair and now the levels are messed up somewhere else. Having this capability you have traceability now. When someone makes an adjustment in it, I'm assuming you probably can say, yeah, this technician logged in and they adjusted the amplifier or the fiber node in this case, and you can see what adjustments were made. And, and I think that whole concept, and we're seeing other vendors that are also doing the same technology where we're just getting rid of pads and equalizers and it's all done electronically. And I, I think that's a great technology in the industry. Well, I mean, let, let's, let's give a, like a case in point would be when you and I worked at Secor and people would misbalance amplifiers. We all know that the pad and EQ in front of the preamp affects your CNR levels because your levels are so low hitting the preamp. And but when you go to where you hit the post step, that usually affects your distortions. 
So what if you called for a, a 10 pad and a five pad, but you swap the pads? Yep. Now all of a sudden you're overdriving or underdriving. And so your, your levels are proper coming out, but your, your performance sucks. Yeah. And people don't know why their performance is, is bad. They don't realize that they switch those pads, but this is, this is a way that you could say, I here, here's what the plant design is. Here's what my output level should be. The, it should be a five and a 10 pad and you could automatically push that configuration into the fiber node and it will, it should be right always because you, you've, you've put that design in there. Yeah. What we envision is these, these nodes would be actually pre-set up in a, in the warehouse. And then a technician would take it out to the pole. If you look in the lid, there is a QR, a really small QR there on the RPD. The, there would be an app on the phone that would scan that QR and not only log in and use this, uh, what we call smart automation, uh, smart fi automation. Um, it would log in the MAC address of the RPD, but it would also tag this with Latin long. So you have GIS. So you know exactly where this node was placed. Might, maybe because of the strand mapping, it couldn't be placed where you thought it was going to be placed on the, on the mapping software. And it actually was one pole down. But once the technician hangs it, then you know exactly where it's located. So one other thing I was going to add just about this is that while we were at the show, John did do a demonstration mm-hmm. of this node. And the video is about 11 minutes long. And so we'll, we'll post that on the website yeah, and we'll- on YouTube so people can actually watch it. But we didn't want to have it. Yeah, right. It would be a little, little weird. Yeah, I didn't know if I even talked about it during that. That when we were talking, you didn't uh, talk about the um, the cell phone um, part of it, but yeah. But there was one other thing Mike Whitley told me I didn't realize was we can actually shut down a downstream hybrid if this node doesn't need say four RF outputs. So instead of just putting a a line terminator or a housing terminator. You could shut down the hybrid, which one eliminates potential CPD from a bad terminator, but two eliminates the power draw and heat dissipation because you actually turn down the power to a hybrid. That's actually like, really that's nice cool. because yeah, yeah. If, if you're not using that port, the hi- the hybrid's still powered. You're terminated at the port, but to, to your point, you're still drawing on the power supply. You're drawing off the the uh, uh, the, the mains power that's coming in, whether it's 60 volt or 90 volt, unnecessarily. So that's yeah. that's a nice, that's a good feature. It's a nice way to go green. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, and I think, uh, yeah, I think this was pretty much the final meeting we're having uh, with guy from Anga. So we're getting ready for the Anga show. And then this is, uh, what's that? How'd you get that picture? Uh, we were, it's a uh, fi- final night. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Long story behind that yeah. one. <laughs> like, how are you so high up? You got a drone? <laughs> we flew. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> we had planned on leaving on Friday and then uh, ended up spending an extra night. Up. And so if anyone saw us at the airport, me is feeling much better now. So. <laughs> <laughs> Nice weather, though. You got to admit, I mean, it was what 75 during the oh, day. It was very nice. Great week, especially for the because show. the last time they had the SCT show there, there was a blizzard. So I was really happy. Yeah. yeah. And I think so, next year is for back. Where's it scheduled next year? Atlanta. Atlanta. Yeah, it's in our hometown. So we will uh, be looking forward to that. So I think in also in October, it'll yeah. be in Atlanta. So Anyone planning on going to Expo next year, mark that on your calendars. Um, 
I think uh, so. I think the main, from my perspective, the big topic of the show was was RFI. I mean, that seemed to be everywhere on the show floor. I, I don't know, John. Did you get a chance to walk around and see any other different perspective? Or yeah, I, I, I it's it's weird, and I kind of blunt about stuff like this. Uh, I always felt like you know working for Cisco. Cisco's bread and butter is routers and switches, so it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that. We want to create more traffic on the internet. Hence, we had video cameras. Hence, we had telepresence and video chat. More video, the more data bits, the more routers and switches, right? That makes sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's easy to understand. Uh, Cisco got into the residential side with Linksys. It got our name known in the residential side. Then we sold Linksys packs off after we you know, solidified our positioning on the residential side. Um, and then I thought, you know, why would Cisco buy SA? Well, to get set-top boxes, more video, start pushing IP. We're there. We're IP video. Um, why would Cisco stick with HFC plan? Here's why I think, because you want to be a one-stop shop, and HFC is very cyclical. You know, you and I, working at Secor, we saw it too. People would upgrade their cable plans maybe every five years, six years. Yep. You know, 750, 860. One gig took a long time to get people to upgrade to one gig. You know, Cox went from a publicly traded company to private. And then they said, all right, now that we're not being controlled by Wall Street, let's invest money and go to one gig. And they upgraded all the plant to one gig. Yep. Other systems are still at 860, you know? So this HFC upgrade cycle is getting much higher again. And where it's coming at is the RFI stuff. Yes, and all, well, also Doxus 3.1 is driving upgrades in a lot of systems where they want to go to either one gig or 1.2 gig now. So we're seeing yes. major, major upgrades not just in North America, but also Europe and, and in other parts of the world that they've been maybe 750 or 860 systems and now they, they want to go out to 1.2 gig or at least one gig. Yeah, I agree. I had a customer in Colombia, Colombia, I have to say it correctly, Colombia. Um, they were 860 or 750 and they were looking at one gig. I'm like, why would you stop at one gig? The 1.2 gig products have gallium nitride instead of gallium arsenide. And they have much higher gains, so you don't have to re-space your housings anyway. So just go to 1.2 gig and be done with it. And even if you don't use 1.2, don't worry about it. At least you have it there and future-proof. So the gallium nitride is also more power efficient. So there's there's multiple reasons to go to a gallium nitride and a 1.2 gig. You're getting more frequency. You're getting more power efficiency. You're getting better distortions. Yeah, the, the bad thing about the 1.2 gig would be your passes have to be upgraded to one point. They, they usually list at 1.25. But most of the taps out in the field are probably listed at one one gig. Um, so if you're going to go all the way to 1.2, then you might have to change some of your passives as well. But the actives, you might as well go to 1.2 gig and just be done with it. I also like the idea of the pluggable diplex filter. So if you can pull out the 42-54 split and do an 85-102 split, uh, that might be something that's really palatable, you know, especially if I try to do DOCSIS 3.1 upstream. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the diplex filter is a good thing to bring up. I think anyone that's looking at it, investing in amplifiers and fiber nodes should really talk to their vendors closely about what's the roadmap on the diplex filters. Are they upgradable? They really must be upgradable. And what is the upgrade path? So I've seen different solutions with different vendors. Some of them have like two diplex filters in, so you can just switch and it's an automatic, easy upgrade. Um, although I'm sure that adds more cost. Uh, but most vendors have some sort of upgrade capability or, you know, some some way that you're not locked into that diplex filter. You remember when we worked at Cisco or C-Corp so many years ago, 
we had diplex fillers that were soldered down to the board. The upgrade path is called throw away the old module and buy a new one. And that, that's, that's not a good solution to be considering if you're looking at uh, investing in amplifiers and, and, and nodes moving forward. Well, back then you used to tweak uh, the capacitors, resistors, and the coils just to get a flat response. Then you yeah. close the housing lid and it would change again. <laughs> yeah, and so, so then you put finger stock on top. <laughs> More <laughs> grounding, and then, <laughs> so uh, I, where I see it going is we're at the we're getting at the peak of a HFC cycle again, where it's people are going to invest in upgrading their cable plant, and if they do that, it still behooves us economically to not do fiber all the way to the home. Uh, we said this before; it's not the last mile; it's the last 100 feet. So I do envision us eventually getting to remote fly to the tap where everyone, the remote five is a small device and it's only four to eight people off of that little, little node. To give everybody a node like an RFOG network or a fiber to the home, that's still pretty expensive. You're talking about ripping up coax in the, in the ground, uh, going through people's houses. Yeah, that, it, it's still, if money wasn't the object then we wouldn't have this discussion. We wouldn't have DOCSIS probably if money wasn't the object. Yeah. You know, DOCSIS yeah. allows us to keep utilizing co coax cable and utilizing the plant in a very well-known, structured uh, specification, uh, which drove down the prices of all the CPE. You know, the, the CPE comes down a lot, right? Yeah, so I think, it's a, I think it's a good discussion because you have people that say, well, once you get to node plus zero, why not go all fiber through the, through, through the west, rest of the neighborhood? And I think, I think depending on the area, you know, pushing fiber to the home seems, seems like such an easy thing to do. We've recently seen that scenario go where AT&T has come through and pushed fiber through the neighborhood. And it is amazing how much damage and how much irritation that creates in a neighborhood <laughs> where, where you see reasonably sane people, people go, go insane <laughs> when, when AT&T comes through and starts. And, and they, try to, they try to do it is, is with as least destruction as they can. But yet they 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 go and cut through people's gas lines. They cut through people's water lines. They cut through electric lines. They cut and, through and, the cable lines. And, and, and that's yeah. the simple stuff. That's yeah. just not talking about destroying everyone's lawns and bushes and stuff like that, running the fiber through. So if cable operators have the ability to offer near fiber optic service or equivalent service without having to be the cable operator who came through and ripped up my lawn, cut my gas line, my water line, and everything else. It's, it's a really nice solution to be able to do that. Plus, you don't have all the cost of, of doing all I that. I mean, they definitely tried to be careful, but there was still some damage that definitely happened. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's very disruptive. I mean, it's disruptive. I mean, some people just don't even want you to mess around with their flowers. Yeah, <laughs> their flower bed or whatever, and when we you have live, invisible fences and stuff like that as well. Yeah. When you live in yeah. HOAs, HOAs have the right to refuse. Um, to, the, depending on the HOAs, they can keep you from coming in. I think, yeah, I, don't, I think it depends. So, yeah. but so, yeah, it's so. I think to your point, being able to go to like a, an RFI to a tap. And, and then at that point, you have DOCSIS 3.1, or you could even do full duplex. I mean, you have speeds. That's where, that I, think, go. That's where I think FDX comes a uh, bigger play. FDX, you're talking about using higher upstream frequencies.
frequencies to get. Let, let's let's call this out for what it is. FDX is the problem it's solving is upstream speed. Yep. 585, 5 to 204, it's still not going to get us one gig on the upstream. Now, if I do remote 5 to the tap and I'm a lot closer and the only coax I have is a drop cable, I could do maybe 5 to 500 megahertz on the upstream, full duplex with the downstream doing 258 to 1 gig on the downstream. I might be able to get 1 gig, 2 gig, 3, 5 gig on the upstream. And that's what FDX solves. But to run upstream frequencies that high, we all know attenuation is bad at higher frequencies. We already have upstream power level issues already. But if the remote five device is really close to me and I don't have to hit that tap with 40, I have to hit it with zero because that's where the RPD is. That's where the fly chip is. Then that coax loss is not so bad because not much coax and my RPD is so close. Right. And now because it's so close, maybe I can even do 4K qualm in the upstream, not just 1K. Sounds like a pipe dream, but it's, it's doable. And so, so we talked to, and, and we, we can't disclose, we, we talked to some, at least a vendor out there, that they are talking about taking RFI devices and putting them basically into SOCs or silicon on chips. And that will, I mean, what we're talking about, will re- make it possible that the cost of an RFI device and the size of an RFI device will fit into a tap. Yeah. I mean, that is that becomes feasible at that point. Not this year, but as time goes by, it becomes very conceivable that we could actually realize something like that and the cost becomes possible. And as did internet speeds go up... Did anyone good. talk to you about who's going to power up these devices? Because that's no. still a concern. Like, if I do an R5 device, say, in a tap, do I power it from one of the subscribers? Like, how do I get power to that thing? Solar, man. It's all solar. <laughs> I said we should be talking to Elon Musk yeah. and get the Tesla guys to work on it. <laughs> yeah, I think those, you know, we'll figure those solutions out. So, But it's not a tap. We can get it off the main line still. Yeah. But, but they're really, at that point, there really is no main line because it's a tap location, but you're running fiber to that tap now. But maybe you still have the old coax. So, I mean, all of these conversations are different depending on brownfield versus greenfield. If right. it's greenfield, you probably are running fiber to the hill. But we're trying to deal with what we have today and keep return on investment, right? Yeah. Even though that investment's been for 60 years of <laughs> coax yeah. cable. So I, I would say, you know, before this show, I was really struggling. Well, how does FDX fit in? Is, is, is it really because it only makes sense at node plus zero? But after this show, there were so many discussions that we have. And to your point, when you start talking about putting RFI and TAP and stuff, it, it really, that progression starts to make sense. There was another interesting technology with fiber um, that, the cable ha- labs have, I, I don't want to disclose that just yet. I mean, if you saw that demo, it was cool. But um, when you start talking about backhaul and the amount of data that comes over, there's even evolving technologies in that. So there's, there, was a lot, there was some really cool tech that was displayed at, at, at the uh, expo that just like, uh, like we talked about, to make virtual CCAP a reality, you need RFI. Once we have virtual CCAP and RFI, now we start needing more, we have more requirements on our fiber backhaul. And so there's just, you know, we just keep having these new technologies that keep extending the life of cable in, in one way or another. And it's really exciting. And, and we see these things emerge at SCT Expo and at these shows. So I think at the Anga show, hopefully you'll get to, uh, you'll be there at Anga this uh, spring. We're going to see even more exciting things come out there. Summer. When is it, June? So when it's always it at the end of May, beginning of June. I, I don't Somewhere have Somewhere in yeah. June. Just remember bringing a wallet. 
now have Android Pay, so I'm good. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I have your little sleeve here that says Got Doxus, so I keep my uh, a credit card in my phone all the time. Yes, yeah, awesome. But I'm always good now. <laughs> but uh, I do feel like uh, every year I'm like, how much longer does Doxus? How much? <laughs> what kind of legs does Doxus have? You know, and then we come out with something new. So yeah. we keep reinventing Doxus. You know, if we were like Samsung and iPhone, we'd be up to Doxus 10 by now. <laughs> all the stuff that we've done, right? Like when we do FDX, I don't know if anyone's even said officially if that's going to be called Doxus 4 I haven't heard anything. Everything I've heard with FDX is it's an extension of 3.1. So I, I, it, it, I, I think we are just yeah. very... Um, <laughs> We were very hesitant to go to Doxus 4.0. <laughs> <laughs> like 3.0, right? We went from 3.0 to 3.1. We didn't want to say 4.0. I'm like, I would have said 1.0, 2 Yes. I'm not, I, I can't, I can't get into the details. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think we're ever going to make 4.0. <laughs> <laughs> uh. But uh, yeah, we definitely keep reinventing and getting more speed out of the pipe we, we inherited all these years. Um, and we're just pushing and pushing and pushing and we're getting better technology. So um, I think it's getting cheaper. It's uh, less less uh, heat, less energy. Um, I mean, we're in a good space. I think we're in a good space. Yep. You know? So anything else you saw, John, you want to cover? Um, who did I talk to? Oh, this might be interesting from your side is if I have common path distortion, can PNM be used to track that down? Have you done anything with the modems in PNM to maybe locate where common path distortion is? A non-linear? Or is that linear? Linear? Non-linear. No, common path distortion is non-linear. Um, so... In, in PNM and in, in the working group, in an ingenious working group at Cable Labs, we can identify, we can see common path distortion. Uh, I would say we can identify sort of maybe what leg uh, on an amplifier it's on. Just by um, looking at the RF spectrum, right? Yes, and, and we could maybe correlate uh, if it's, we could correlate a group of modems that it's coming from. Uh, so we can, you can narrow it down that way. There is another company that uh, is also working on it with a, a different technology, um, but I would say the two there's sort of two challenges. If the plant is all analog, it becomes much easier because there you see the common path distortion every six megahertz in the upstream right. or eight megahertz if it's a in a in a European system where the the channel spacing is eight megahertz. Um, what happens though is most systems are going all digital and in all digital systems, common path distortion just looks like an elevated noise floor. That makes it much more difficult. So what you have to start doing then is in injecting uh, two or three tones in the downstream. So you can then pick up those tones in the upstream. So that's part of what we're doing in the ingenious working group is, is there's some work that's been done to, to do that. That becomes more of an invasive test then. Um, versus a, just a passive test where you're monitoring the, the tones uh, or, or monitoring the signals in that case. Um, yeah, I, so, I stopped in, you know, our good friend, uh, one of the, the CPD hunter, uh, Arcom. It's Arcom now, right? Arcom yeah. bought the rights to the CPD stuff. 
uh, the Quiver and the Hunter. And they they showcased to me a demo of their little device that would be plugged into, say, a fiber optic node mm -hmm. and tapping off test points. And it would inject, just like you said, CW carriers doing all the mathematics and basically doing like radar or sonar, sending the signal down, knowing the velocity propagation and determining where the second, third order, fourth order harmonics or, or intermods would fall. And so even if you had maybe slight corrosion that would cause CPD, but it's not that bad to even show up on the RF spectrum, you could indicate where that fault lies, kind of like before it becomes a real bad fault. Yeah. So like ingress under the carrier or maybe the, the third or fourth inner mod is actually lower than the noise floor. So you can't see it anyway, but they can pick it up because it's all mathematics. Right. Um, and then you can uh, find where the location lies, which I think is kind of interesting. But they also showcased what I called uh, FDR. So it's kind of like their TDR replacement in line, but it's really FDR frequency domain mm -hmm. reflectometry, um, trying to use like a sweet pulse. Um, and then indicate where a, a problem might lie by injecting a sweet pulse or something like that. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and they, uh, they also have um, a uh, sort of an API, or basically a, a, a programming interface uh, on that product so that it can be integrated with uh, other people's PNM solutions. So if you have a, if you're using a PNM solution, you know, so... Uh, you can take that product, and, and you're using that product, you can integrate it in and also use it. Um, a lot of times what they're looking for, though, are, are effectively micro-reflections. So it's basically micro-reflections that are causing CPD. It's like corrosion on a connector. And depending on the, the level of the micro-reflection, you'll still pick that up in your cable modem's pre-equalizer. Yeah, I mean, so, I could do that with PNM. I mean, I yeah. get micro-reflections grouped away from the PNM information. So a lot of, I mean, most of the time, we, you know, you'll pick that same micro-reflections up with a pre-equalizer. Okay. And that creates a correlation group. One, one other thing I saw on the floor that interested me was uh, the small, what do you call the small attenuators? Um, what do we call them? Pencil attenuators? Some people will call uh, them pencil. Inline pads. Yeah, inline pads. Um, <laughs> you know, F male to female. Yeah. Uh, they make them now with filters that small with filters, padding, step attenuators, but I also saw some equalizers, cable simulators. The reason why I like the idea is I have with Durfee, you know, the downstream radio frequency interface spec with DOCSIS 3.0 and 3.1, when you start activating more spectrum on a CMTS port, it's not just one channel, it's 32 single carrier qualms, 32 video on demand, uh, qualm signals, two blocks of 192 megahertz of OFDM. So you have a lot of spectrum on one single port. So if that port happens to lie 100 feet away from my optical transmitter head end, by the time you hit your optical transmitter, your levels look like this. Right. So you, either your CMTS has to do this, or you have to put something in to create equalization so you can flatten it out before it hits the optical laser. So they are making these equalizers. If, if your CMTS doesn't support it, you could just plug in this equalizer and get that the proper tilt and get proper levels at the laser. Yeah, so it's so not an active device, which is kind of good. And it's very small. So, I, I mean, I think that was kind of a nice, uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's particularly going to be beneficial when you're using the mini coax for cabling in a head end or if you have a long run of cable in the head end that, that you're going to see that tilt. And really, you don't want your signals coming out of the head end fiber optic transmitter when they're not flat. 
So Correct. I think that's, that's a great use for the, the, the and, and, and from my side, yeah, from my side, we are implementing, and I showcased some of it at the, at the demos. Um, we can put some tilt at the CMTS, but according to Durfee, it's only 8 dB. So if I have to go full spectrum, say 54 to 1.2 gig, and I have 100 feet or 200 feet of mini coax on the downstream, that 8 dB is not enough. So even if I do implement this on the CMTS, I might still need three or four dB more. Uh, so I hit my levels at the laser flat. But now you run into having your CMTS engineer and your RF head-in engineer, you know, RF engineer or RF guy. Yeah, now they're putting back and fingers back and forth, and it's just so much easier to have a, a connector <laughs> or a, a bear, you know, an inline tilt or a, a cable simulator, whatever it is, and and they don't they don't have to fight with each other. <laughs> I agree. You know, it's funny you say that. Is I used to say there was always a CMTS engineer, an IP guy, and then there was an RF guy, the guy that handled head end. We went to CCAP. There was a fight between the video guys and the CMTS guys because the CCAP does video. So who owns the box? So there was always a fight. And those lines have been blurred. So now it might be one guy, you know, does the video, does the IP. We go remote fi, we start blurring these lines between outside plant and inside plant. Yeah, it just gets even more exciting. <laughs> Who's controlling that? So now you have the fight and the power struggle of who owns what, you know. That's part of the – it's not just technology, right? Yeah. You, you, you throw the people element in there. Yeah. <laughs> just like little grenades. <laughs> so, all right. But yes. speaking of connectors, we, we did try to find some decent connector companies while we were at SCT, but we ran out of time to really find anyone. So if anybody's listening who has any good recommendations on. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up, Mia. What, my, what, one of my goals at Expo was to go around and speak with connector vendors and also um, splitter, just like household splitter vendors, connector or uh, combiners, just, you know. But high, good quality. Yes, because as we do so much work with PNM, what we're finding out is um, even though you think it's a good connector, it's sometimes not. Even though you think it's a good splitter, it sometimes is not. And, and we'd like to do a nice white paper to make good recommendations for technicians as to here's here's how to properly choose a connector, here's how to properly uh, put okay. a connector on a cable, and here's how to properly select splitters for putting in a house box. Yeah. So we're looking. I've actually reached out to a, a, at least one or two vendors, but didn't get a good response back because I'm not sure. Uh, I don't think I reached out to the right people. So we're, we're kind of asking for some good recommendations, maybe to help put together a nice white paper to make sure that correct information is out there. I mean, coming, you know, off the top of my mind, you, you got to worry about, you want to go to 1.2 gigahertz. So you got to get a passive that goes to 1.2 gig. Yep. Once you do that, you got to worry about Mocha. So if you're yep. doing Mocha in the house at 1.15 gig, maybe that splitter comes with a built-in filter, a notch filter. I don't know. Or maybe you have to add a filter. Um, so understanding the ingress coming in. And also I, the big one I see is saturation of the ferrites in the device itself. So if you have a splitter that now is doing 585 megahertz on the upstream at 50 dBmV, you could override, overdrive the ferrites in that splitter, cause intermod in that splitter. So now all of a sudden you have port-to-port -port isolation. You have the ferrite material itself. Um, 
Yeah, there's a lot of little gotchas there I could see that would be good to kind of cover. Yeah, well, I, the- I told someone this. I was like, yeah, they said, were you looking for it to show? I'm like, connectors and splitters. And they said, <laughs> why? why? That's, uh, like, they thought that was a trivial question. They were like, what are you, why are you doing that? Yeah, and I'm like, it's actually, I think, a little bit more complicated than you think <laughs> when you start talking about some of the new technologies we're doing. So, yeah, connector people, splitter people, please uh, feel free to get in touch with me. Or even if a cable operator listening yeah. has a recommendation, like they think this is a really great product, you know, we'd yeah. be interested. Yep. Hey, even on our side, we're, um, we had customers ask about a compression MCX connector. We've always done a mini coax MCX connector for our CBR8 and 10K that was a, com- a crimp, and they wanted compression, but that compression, it's, its real estate or its dimensions wouldn't fit into our header. Um, so we are now working with Amphenol, I believe, to do a uh, compression fitting in a different type of uh, header for our new high-density R5 shelf. And that was another thing we showcased at the, at the uh, SCT Expo was this new 7RU shelf for Remote 5 that would be for MDUs or maybe hub sites and stuff like that, but it was Remote 5. But the RF connectors are MCX, but they're compression MCX. Yeah. So that's a, a, a nice deviation from what we were always using before. Because all the RF guys want to do compression. Right. They feel more... Um, everyone, you know, everyone feels... A compression is the is the best connector, but actually, I've found yeah. many many compression connectors that were not properly connected, and yeah. they were leaking like a sieve. They were leaking as bad as some of the push the twist on connectors that I found, and <laughs> and so again, that's that's why I'm back to saying I I want to I want to know I want to know what is a really good connector and what is the really proper way of putting those connectors on. Very good. Yeah. Alrighty. Good so. Um, yeah, we did still have one more question. Excuse me. Sure. Um, there was a question that came in from a listener. I'll let you read it. Oh, yeah. So uh, we'll cover just one, one question before we end here. I'm, I'm one, uh, one, or, yeah, this is one of our listeners. I'm wanting to advance my career in broadband technology. I'm currently a plant maintenance tech uh, for a, a major MSO. I'd like to get into the engineering side. What areas of study would be best? I'm looking at a BS degree. So kind of putting this out there. What are your thoughts, wow. John? Well, wow. I never thought of myself as a uh, uh, counselor, a <laughs> career counselor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, one, we know SCT has the, the DOCSIS certification now. Uh, they also cover the CCNA, Cisco certifications. I believe they still cover those. Um, a lot of this stuff is online, study at your own pace. So SCT does cover some of that stuff. Um, outside plant to engineering. I mean, anything you learn with DOCSIS, you know, you can say, art, read the freaking manual. Yeah. <laughs> the DOCSIS spec is out there, but, you know, it'll put you to sleep. And now that we went from 10 to 1-1-2-0-3-0-3-1, it's, it's pretty oh, John, don't say that. The DOCSIS manual does not put Brady to sleep. <laughs> 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 so um, I, I mean, I did struggle with this because um, uh, I think, you know, to your point, I think there's our industry is really unique that there's even even having a BS degree. That doesn't necessarily mean you're qualified to work in the industry because there's so much you have to learn. But at the same time, if you get a BS degree, I would probably go 
I'm, I'm torn as to whether or not, you know, if you, if you want to get a degree, I think that's great. I'm torn as to whether or not you'd go the electrical engineering route, which I think gives you a lot of good things on a theory side of how RF works in sort of the, the field of, it gives you sort of the basics, a, a nice fundamental, which is very helpful. Um, at the same time, computer science might be very helpful because that's going to tell you a lot about routing and how sort of how do the programming of things works if you're working on CMTSs, if you're working on, on routers and, and all that side. There's, so those are kind of two different ways, maybe two different programs. Maybe it depends more about the university because we, we don't really know where this person's yeah. close to. So I would probably look into the university close to you. Of course, since all of us went to Penn State. Um, <laughs> yeah. But also, I mean, Georgia Tech has, of all the schools I'm aware of, I think Georgia Tech has worked most closely with the SCTE for developing content relevant to the cable industry. That's true. So that might be a, a great school to right. look at if you're... But I would recommend wherever you are, because depending on where you live, because I'm sure he doesn't want to give up his job to yeah. move to Georgia or Penn State. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> But to your point about the basic stuff, you could get that in the first two years. So the question would be, do you really need a BS or just a two-year uh, associate yeah. degree to get the right. basics? And or, then the other side of it is, is RF dying? We've had that conversation, had conversation recently. Too, that yeah. there, I think RF has a very uh, finite, there's going to be a very finite it's gonna number be of a jobs niche. in the outfit. It's yeah. definitely going to be a niche field. So because yeah, we're going remote by, we're going more digital. So everything's IP. But that's that's things. just in broadband. I mean, maybe there's other industries that still use a lot of RF. So but I think starting off with a, you know, if if you're not looking at the BS, starting off with a lot of like the CCNA courses, the, the Cisco certified courses, that gives you so much knowledge about routing and configuration and stuff like that. The SCTE courses, there's a lot of good training there. Um, so yeah. that's a good way to start as well. There's a lot of stuff online too, so I guess it really depends on where you want to go. Yeah. So I think we've covered that question. Yep. <laughs> I think we tiptoed around it very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like if, if it was my son, like my son says, What should I get into? I'm like, I, Should I say this on a live thing? Um, <laughs> you probably will, anyhow. <laughs> return on investment for a four year degree is tough. Yeah. For kids today coming out with $100,000 loans, it's like, for what you know uh, a two-year degree in a trade has a better return on investment than a four-year degree in an engineering degree uh, it just it becomes difficult unless you keep up with technology you keep um, up with networking with actual people not just socially on social online <laughs> yeah you know, networking that's what we go to these events too right it's part of networking press the flesh uh, people get to know you and uh, you learn more information and the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. <laughs> Ignorance for sure is bliss, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is indeed. But uh, it's, it's, it's tough, but uh, knowledge is power. So the more you learn, the more you're going to uh, have the opportunity to network and, and promote yourself and market yourself. Yep. I, I will say, like, Stanford University right. has amazing online courses. There's, like, Coursera online. There's uh, What are some of the other ones you've looked at, Mia, that you I don't remember right now. Yeah, but there, there's tons of stuff online, absolutely free, and you can get you can increase your knowledge in so many areas. But I think that's to John's point. 
I mean, there's a lot you can do now online and not necessarily go to school to a formal education. And to your point too, you can actually have a better return on investment on learning a trade than maybe getting a degree. I think if you go to school, you should really have a focused view of what you want to, you know where you're going to go. So if if you don't know where you're going to go, you're wasting your money. Yeah. Or your parents' money. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds a little selfish there, John. (laughs) I think everybody paid for, well, I paid for school myself. Same here. (laughs) But we can, we're open for adoption, John. <laughs> if you want to pull me back to school, John. If you want to pay for me to go back to school, it'd be great. I have, a, I, have a boat, I have a boat and it says College 529 on it. <laughs> Basically, use my son's money for my boat. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> All right. So, closing comments. It was a good show. Yeah, I had a good time. It was good. Um, I think... I think SCTE was good. Looking forward to having it in uh, Atlanta next year, and uh, it'll it'll be interesting. I think last I think last year's SCTE had a lot of like new, new and exciting things come up. This year, I think it was more of an evolution of where these things have gone. They've matured. Yeah, they've matured. So, um, yeah, I think it was. What, good. What's your uh, prog- prognostication? The prognostication for next year or for ANCA? For SCT and Expo. And and Atlanta next year? I think we're going to have deployed. You look in your crystal ball and you look at all the shows and how people can get information so quickly on webinars and these Google Hangouts and stuff. Instead of having to wait every year to go to an Expo, um, if how do we how we draw more people to the Expo? Or do you foresee maybe the expo combining with NAB or the expo combining with, well, it would never combine with CES, but is there another industry show that would make sense to combine with? And that's what I, I, think, I wonder. Yeah. I mean, I think it, like you said earlier, it's already started happening because we used to have the Western show that disappeared. Then NCTA. we had NCTA. That's, that's no longer around. There's that other one. I can't remember. Emerging technologies would be a good one. Yeah. So, I mean, it probably would be good. To, I think it, the industry has been consolidating, and SETE is a still a decent show to go to. But, um, I think yeah, it's one it'll of the be. Last, last big technical shows in the US, right? So, I think it'll have legs. Probably, so, yeah. But uh, it'll be interesting to see in the next four or five years how we keep everyone invested in going to this and drawing more people. I think it, I think it goes back to the old saying, evolve or die. So, yeah. Evolve or die. You know, yep. Evolve or die. So unless I think the SCT has to continuously evolve, um, I think it also has to remain technically strong and not let itself um, backslide into a big, more of a marketing thing, kind of like what you were talking about earlier. You know yeah. what I mean? Or, um, I think the worst thing is, is if you paid for a session, you go in and you feel like you've just listened to 30 minutes of a marketing pitch. Yeah. So um, I think remaining technically relevant is really important for the SCT. Yeah. yeah. The other good thing is after the workshop, I did a presentation, but we also, I used to hate it, but I look back and I'm like, it's a good thing. We have to write a technical paper to go with the slides. Yeah. So when someone goes to my session, they can download the paper and get exact details i mean i can go into cisco details 
because I'm not presenting it, but it's in the paper. Right. So they can look at my paper and almost like a cookie cutter and say, all right, I'm going to do the exact configs to get the speeds that John said I should be able to get. Right. Yeah. Well, that's what that cable operator was talking to me about from Switzerland, where he's like, yeah, this is great because you get this big technical paper to go along with it. So, yeah. The technical papers are, are very valuable, even though I think a lot of people don't download them and read them. The people who do download and read them find them incredibly valuable. Yeah. Well, I think the point is, is that some people do download and read them. Yeah. So. <laughs> so. All right. All right. John, well, thank, thank you, you again for joining us. Mia, another, thank you for another, coming online and joining <laughs> us and Another 15-minute Google Hangout. Yeah, the shortest <laughs> Hangout ever. Like just when we started talking about it a couple years ago with John. Yeah, it'll just be 15 minutes. Yeah. It won't be very long. Yeah. And for all, for all of our audience, please, if you liked it, click subscribe or add us to our podcast and click subscribe and give us a thumbs up. Thank yeah, you, you can, for yeah, you can get us on um, iTunes and Google Play too. So. Yeah. So, all right, everyone. Thanks and so long. Bye. Thanks. Bye.